0: You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland.
1: It is required of each individual believer. Did you notice that in verse 38? Let each of you be baptized. Didn't ask the fathers to come forward. Didn't ask the head of a tribe to come forward. Every single person out there, male, female, you have to step forward and you individually have to be baptized. Each individual must submit to baptism. Why? Why? Because salvation is of an individual. God saves individual people. He doesn't save groups. He saves individuals.
0: Can you imagine if driver's licenses were given out on a group basis? Just pile a bunch of people in a van, let the leader take the test, and then if they pass, licenses for everyone. That's insane. Some things must be done on an individual basis. In today's message, Pastor Tom teaches us all about water baptism for believers in Christ. Just like each individual must themselves repent of their sins, baptism must also occur on an individual basis. You yourself must be the one who fulfills this ordinance. Now, here's Pastor Tom in the book of Acts chapter 2 as he continues his message. Yes, I'm trying to convert you.
1: One of Satan's strategies is to take clear things that God has said and muddy the waters and pretend as if what God said was not clear. In fact, that's a strategy of all liars. You see it all the time in politics. There's a statement made. It's very clear what they meant. And then somehow it comes out the other end. Well, maybe they didn't mean that. But it's true in any level. When you're talking to someone and you make a declaration and they twist your words, you're like, that's not what I said. You took my words and you twisted them. Well, that is a skill that Satan has developed. He's very skilled at taking something very plain that God says and then making it go through a number of questions and additions and changes and come out the other end. And you're not so sure that's what God said. But God's word is really clear. There are some really tough verses in the Bible, but most of what God wants us to know, it's not hard. It's very simple and it's straightforward. When it comes to how do I make sure that I'm saved, how do I know for sure I'm a Christian, that I've been converted to Christianity, to Christ? That is a place, I think, where Satan wants to work extra hard at making everything confusing. So you go to this denomination, and they make it sound one way, and you go to this denomination, and they make it sound another way. That's why we're taking our time in studying biblical conversion. When you're converted to Christianity from worshiping another God or just from worshiping yourself or money or whatever, and you actually go through that conversion, how do you know you've gone through that? How do you know you're a believer? How do you know you've been properly converted? So we're studying Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. This is our third message now. And we've been talking about the components of biblical conversion, and we've been taking our time going through them so you can make sure you understand the process of what God is doing and what our responsibility is. I'm going to go ahead and read Acts 2, 37 to 41. This is right after Peter finished preaching a sermon. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children And for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So they go from this bewildered crowd listening to signs of the Holy Spirit that arrived on the day of Pentecost, and they end up inside the church baptized. And so you see biblical conversion. But what are the steps or the components or aspects of it? That's what we're taking time to study. Our thesis in this mini-series has been Christian conversion is a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing to be converted to Christianity. The world wants to tell us, quit trying to convert me, and we're not going to stop. We're going to keep trying to convert people because it's a beautiful thing. If Christian conversion is a beautiful thing, and it is, then working for somebody's conversion is a noble thing. It's a wonderful thing. You should not have to apologize because you're trying to see somebody converted to Christianity. If you're on the college campus or you're in the workplace and you're talking to someone and they turn to you and they say, are you trying to convert me? I've got a very good answer for you. It's the title of the series. Yes, I'm trying to convert you. It's a noble thing. Is a fireman trying to save people from a a building that's burning with fire? Of course that's what he's trying to do. And you need to make your intentions clear. Well, this text presents several components of biblical conversion. We've gone through uh, the first three already. Component number one, just for review... Component number one of conversion is gospel preaching, or you've got to give them the gospel. You've got to tell them about Jesus Christ. That's what Peter did in all the verses that are before that. Told them all about his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of God. It's the word of God that changes people. You have no power to convert someone. You have no power to change someone. But if you speak the word of God, you don't have to be as skilled as a preacher up here. Just speak what you know, quote some verses, get out of track, tell them. God's word will do all the rest. It's interesting that God doesn't want to send angels floating around the world preaching the gospel. He wants to use you. So if you go, take the gospel, take what you know of the gospel, be straightforward with what the Bible says. God will use you to uh, bring component number two, and that is conviction of sins. Conviction of sins. All of this is review. Everybody who comes to Jesus has to come to Jesus because they were convicted, convinced they were a sinner. There are a lot of people out there and they think they're good people. They can't be Christians. The only people that can become Christians are those who come to the conclusion, I'm not a good person. And you have to work on them. You have to show them because they're comparing themselves to other people. And of course they look good. But if you compare yourself to Jesus, you don't look good. And that's the whole point. Jesus is the only life God was pleased with. They have to come to the conclusion that they've sinned. Some of their sins are bad things they've done. Most of their sins are the good things they failed to do. They haven't loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They haven't always given thanks for all things. They've got a very low standard of what they think God accepts. God accepts perfection. You're not perfect, so you're not acceptable. You have to work with them to understand what the real intent of the Ten Commandments were. What are those truths in the Bible that reveal we're not good people? We're fallen creatures. We were made good. We're no longer good. We're sinful people. And so you have to have a conviction of sin before you're going to come to Jesus. Some people go to Jesus because they want Jesus to be their life coach. They want Jesus to help them with a problem that is not being converted. That is using Jesus to have a nice self-esteem or using Jesus to get wealthy. There's a health and wealth gospel that's out there. Those people that come to that kind of a Jesus have not been converted. It takes the narrow pathway of conviction of sin. I'm a sinner. I violated God's commandments. I'm not a good person. I'm going to need forgiveness. I'm going to need someone else to save me. When someone comes to that realization in their mind and they're under conviction of sins, they even might feel sorrow from it, hopefully they will, then you know they're prepared for conversion. And that leads us to component number three, which we spent all of last time on, and that is this, genuine repentance. You can't have conversion without genuine repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of life. It is what we think of as the heart of conversion. Someone is heading one direction, they're worshiping one God, they're living for themselves, they're in a false religion, they're atheists, they're secularists, they're pluralists, whatever it is, and they realize that worldview is not the true worldview. And now they realize that that not all worldviews are equal, not all religions are equal, and they realize they have a false religion, a false worldview. They've lived the wrong way, and now they're going to make a U-turn. They're going to turn around and come back. That is repentance. Their mind has changed, and because their mind has genuinely changed, their life changes. The purpose of their life changes. And that's why John the Baptist, when he told the Pharisees to repent, he said, you better bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance because if you say you repent and there's nothing that changes in your life, you're not now really going to do the things that God says then, as we quoted from Charles Spurgeon, your repentance needs to be repented from because it's not a genuine repentance, okay? So gospel preaching or the word of God, conviction of sins, and then genuine repentance. Today we come to component number four of conversion, the sign, and listen carefully to how this is worded, the sign of water baptism. Would you focus on verse 38 again? Verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Stop there. I know, we're not making it very far, but these are all very important. Baptism has been an important part of Christianity since the days Jesus walked on this earth. Baptism has always been important. Christians have always practiced water baptism. Go to the very beginning, and there were Christians, they were baptizing people. From the very beginning, this text demonstrates this because this is the first day of Christianity. This is the first Christian sermon. This is when the church was born. This is the very day it all started. There are no denominations. There's no church in Rome. There's no church in Ephesus. It's just all in Jerusalem. And here, from the very first response to the first gospel presentation here, once the Holy Spirit had arrived, he says, you need to be water baptized. And you can read that with your own eyes, right? Right? You see that. You should be convinced of that. There is no doubt at all about that. Now, the English term baptism is not a translation. It is a transliteration directly from the Greek language, the term "baptisma," And it simply means to dunk. It simply means to submerge or to immerse somebody in something. It could literally be called, rather than the baptism, it could be called the submerging. That's literally what the word means. It does not mean to sprinkle. It does not mean to pour. Everyone baptized was, by definition, submerged in water. Their whole body went down under the water. There is no mystery and no confusion whatsoever in the Bible about how the baptize. Could you imagine Jesus telling his disciples, I want you to baptize, and then they didn't know how to baptize. The how is in the term. Baptize means submerge them. The mode of baptism is in the word baptize. There's no doubt at all about that. You can see that as you study other passages of Scripture. When Jesus himself was baptized, do you remember where? the Jordan River, right? It says, immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the Spirit of God like a dove descending upon him. Another place says they were baptizing there because there was much water. Well, if you're sprinkling, you don't need much water. It's not rocket science. It's pretty easy. Now, some people have objected and said, yeah, but how would they baptize 3,000 people in Jerusalem? And the answer is they baptized them in pools, so, they had pools? Yeah, they had a number of pools in Jerusalem. They'd been unearthed. Archaeology has confirmed that. You read about that in the New Testament. And so, there were pools there to completely immerse them. This was not something new or strange to the Jewish people. They knew all about washings and immersions and things like that. Now, water baptism is included as a component of conversion. Listen, not because baptism causes conversion, it does not cause conversion but because baptism is the symbol of conversion. Baptism is included as a component of conversion not for the effect that baptism has on the soul, because baptism doesn't change the soul one whit, but for the declaration that baptism is supposed to be making to the entire world. Baptism, notice in your text, in the name of Jesus is the symbol that you have been converted to Christianity. Baptism declares to the world, I have been convicted of my sins and I have now changed my mind. I now believe in Jesus Christ. I am a believer in Jesus Christ and I want all of the world to know that. I don't want to be a secret believer. He is my king, he is my Lord, he's my savior from sin. As I come out of the water, I walk out of the steps or whatever it is, I want everyone to know, you can watch my life, I'm going to try to live for Christ now. So baptism does not cause your faith. Some Christian denominations get that wrong. Baptism does not cause your faith, baptism declares your faith. Baptism does not save your soul. Baptism is the symbol of your soul being saved. And baptism is a really good symbol. It's a really good sign of true conversion for a number of reasons. And you can write these down. Just think about water baptism and what it portrayed. And I just want to give this to you so you can see why the Lord chose this as the symbol that he wanted for conversion. As one was dunked in the name of Jesus, what did that mean? That meant that a person was now identified with a name with which they were being baptized. If they were baptized into another name, then that would be that name that they were baptized into. You know, actually, some baptisms occurred apart from any religious kind of setting. Sometimes there would be bowls, and the ladies in particular would take clothing, and they would dip them into the bowls in order to have a little bit of a dye color on them. That was called bapto. It was just dipping into a bowl. But when they really wanted to submerge it, they used the term baptism, baptisma. It was an intensive form of bapto, and it meant to put it all the way down in it and make sure that when the piece of cloth came out, it was all colored with that cloth, whether it was purple or whatever the dye color was that they wanted. In other words, the person immersed in that came out, identified with that color, So now we're baptized in the name of Jesus. We're colored, so to say, with the color of Christ. He is our coloring. He is the one we're identified with. He now is the name that we carry around. John had a baptism. And people would ask, have you been baptized into John's baptism? John said, you know, I'm out here in the wilderness and I'm baptizing you with water. And I'm telling you, I'm a voice in the wilderness. I'm telling you, get ready because the Lord is coming. Make his pathway straight. And the purpose of his baptism was if you came out, you were humbling yourself and you were getting your soul ready for the arrival of the Lord in Israel. And so if you were baptized into John's baptism, people knew what that meant. That's why he's called John the Baptist. But John's baptism was only a preparatory kind of baptism. Jesus required his own baptism so that people would be identified with him. Remember the Great Commission in Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen: Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, right? And then it's included right in there, baptizing them in the name of, and here you have the triune formula, the Father, the Son, that's Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And then when they come out of the baptismal waters, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. In Acts chapter 19, when the apostle Paul found some men who had been baptized by John the Baptist, he found that they had not been baptized by Jesus, they had not even heard of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit, and he told them, you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Their John's baptism was not good enough. Peter is basically saying the same thing right here. Notice again, this baptism is to be done in the name of Jesus Messiah, Jesus the anointed one. By the way, the same is seen in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, when the apostle Paul was going to be baptized. Paul is reflecting on the time of his conversion in Acts 22, 16. And it says there, Ananias said to Paul, now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name, that's Jesus' name. So as he was being baptized, he would be calling on the name of Jesus. Save me, Lord Jesus, basically. The name and the baptism went together. So is absolute clarity about what the symbol meant to portray to everybody out there. Romans 10, 13 picks up on that. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord, that's the Lord Jesus, will be saved. Anybody who calls on the name of Jesus, there's nothing else more special you need to do. Just call on the name of Jesus and you will be saved. Now, the second reason that this is such a great symbol for conversion is the fact that the whole body has to go down into the water. And it is water. And what happens when your whole body goes down into a bath? You're washed, right? Right? You're cleansed. It's complete cleansing. It's total washing. Just as Ananias said to Paul, be baptized and wash away your sins. Do you think Ananias thought that the water on the outside of the body was actually going to wash away sin? Sin is not dirt on your skin. So he knew as he's talking with that language, he knew that it's symbolic of what's happening inwardly, that there's a washing of your soul before God. Why? Because we're dirty. Another way of understanding sin, what is sin? Sin's dirt. Sin is something that God sees as spoiled and stained and tainted and polluted and contaminated and it's mucky and and it's polluted. It's just not good. And he wants that washed up so you're presentable to God who's holy and pure. And baptism is the symbol of that. We know, of course, that water on the outside of the body cannot cleanse your soul. The real cleansing agent of your soul is the blood of Christ. We know that because it says in 1 John 1, 7, The blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Water doesn't do that. It takes the blood of Jesus. And how does that work? We don't really know. God just takes the blood of Jesus and He counts it as washing our souls clean of sin. And He uses the Holy Spirit to effect that cleansing because we read in Titus 3, 5 that God saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, But how? But according to God's mercy by, here's the instrument, by the washing of, this would have been a great place to talk about baptism, but it's not there, the washing of regeneration, in other words, the new birth, and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit takes the blood of Christ and causes us to be washed, causes us to have a whole new life. That's why the whole body has to go down in. Third reason that full-body water baptism is a good symbol of conversion, is it indicates our death to the old life and our being raised to the new life. Symbolically, if you think about it, you go down into the water confessing your sins, confessing that your life is not worthy of God. So you go down, and there's a sense in which you're buried. You're down all the way underneath. You're done, gone, and finished. You're down under there. Of course, like with Christ's life, we don't want to leave him down there too long, right? Very short time, and then you're raised to newness of life. So you go all the way down, and then you come back up, and now you're a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what it symbolizes. Jesus died, and he was buried, and then he was raised to newness of life. So we are following him, and in Christ, it's symbolically that we are buried with Christ in baptism, and then raised to newness of life. I want you to think about the fact that there are two races in the world. There is Adam's race and there's Christ's race. And everyone that is born into this world is born into Adam's race. Evolution never happened on this planet. It's a great place to remind people of that, isn't it? Evolution is not happening now. It never happened in time past. Evolution is not the origin of the human race. The fossil record has denied evolution. Everything that we see today denies evolution. There's no mechanism to make evolution happen. It's not scientific. It's a religion. It's a farce. It's not true. There was one man and one woman. God made them, Adam and Eve. That is just as scientifically true as it is religiously true. And all of us are born from that one race. And in Adam, we all die. That's what Romans 5 said. We're all part of that race and we die. And that race has fallen. That race is rejected by God. That race, the world that that race lives in has a curse on it. There's a new race. It's the race of Christ where we're born again, where we're put into a new family. We're put into a a new kind of life. And that is life in Christ. And all of everything that God is going to do in the future depends upon you being in that new family, in that new race, in that new tribe, the tribe of Christ, you see. And so that's what we're symbolizing. The old guy in Adam or the old gal in Adam gone. The new person born again. Now, it's true we're not living perfectly after we're baptized, but it shows that God is causing that change in us and that, that new life is going to begin to emerge in us. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 4 talks about this. It says, Therefore we have been buried with Christ through baptism into death So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's why it's a farce to say you're converted and you don't begin to live a new life. Now, water baptism is also a great symbol of conversion... Fourthly, because it is required of each individual believer. Did you notice that in verse 38? Let each of you be baptized. Didn't ask the fathers to come forward. Didn't ask the head of a tribe to come forward. Every single person out there, male, female, you have to step forward and you individually have to be baptized. Each individual must submit to baptism. Why? Because salvation is Of an individual. God saves individual people. He doesn't save groups. He saves individuals. There's no group decision. If people around you make the decision for Christ, that doesn't count for you. You have to make the decision for Christ. Your parents cannot make you a follower of Christ. They can only pray for you, set an example for you, point the direction, teach you, correct you. But you have to make that decision. Each person, humbled by their own conviction of sin, must declare publicly, I'm no good. I've done a self-evaluation. I've taken a look at myself. It's not because someone else said I'm no good. I've looked at myself, and I see that I'm not good. And I know I need Jesus to save me. Now, nowadays, in American Christianity, baptism doesn't seem so radical of a thing, right? It's just go into water, say a few words, come out. What really changed? It doesn't seem like a big deal. But for these Jews on this day of Pentecost, as Peter was preaching to them, taking a stand to say that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah was a big deal. It was a radical thing.
0: Today, we learn that water baptism has always been an important act in the life of a believer. Not that the act of baptism is what washes our sins away, but it symbolizes the washing of our souls. As Pastor Tom said, only the blood of Jesus can do that. But still, water baptism is an important practice in the life of every believer. Not only was it commanded in scripture, but we see it practiced since the birth of the church. We're so glad you joined us today on Discover Hope. We'd like to meet you. So if you're in the area, come visit us at Hope Bible Church. Our Sunday mornings include Bible classes at 9.30 a.m., followed by a worship service at 11 a.m. You can find out more at hopebible.org or give us a call at 443-200-HOPE. That's 443-200-HOPE. We'd also like to invite you to join us in bringing the kingdom of God and the joy of salvation to our listeners by becoming a financial partner of Discover Hope. Find out more under the giving tab at hopebible.org. So why is water baptism so important? Is it required for salvation? What about infant baptism? Does it count if we were baptized before we came to repentance? This topic can sometimes be quite challenging. Join us next time on Discover Hope as Pastor Tom answers these questions. Not only will he give us answers, but he'll guide us through the scriptures to help us discover for ourselves what God's word actually says. To listen again to today's message in the book of Acts, visit hopebiblechurch.org and look under the sermons tab. Pastor Tom will return soon with another in-depth study of God's word. So join us again right here on Discover Hope.